Our topic this morning is a topic that isn't a real comfortable topic. I was, I was asked to speak about uh, protecting the dignity of those we serve. And uh, that's only painful because in North America, those of you who are from North America, we have not been doing a great job at that, in case you hadn't noticed. And most of you probably hadn't noticed because most of you are on the side of doing it, which looks very different from those who are on the side of receiving it. Before we uh, start or end starting, I'd like to go to uh, my favorite book. And uh, we are known as people of the book. This is supposed to be our only rule of faith and conduct. Unfortunately, many of us, myself included, we like to read it, and then we do what Thomas Jefferson did. We take those parts that we like, and we adopt those, and the rest we overlook. Only Thomas Jefferson, he decided to take the parts that he didn't like out of his Bible. There actually is, you can go look, I don't know if you can buy them anymore, but there actually is a Jeffersonian Bible. It didn't have footnotes down at the bottom. He just took the parts that he liked and left the rest of it out. Most of us haven't left those parts out. We just ignore them. But I'd like to read you a few verses. And this first one, if you would make a note of this, Philippians 2, 4 through 10. Okay, Paul says, Don't merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, that's, that's you and me, have, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he, instead he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, then he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, which was a death that was reserved for people who were not only, not only wrongdoers, but scoundrels. I mean, it was, a, it was a public display of disgrace and suffering. And it says, Jesus became, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore also, now this is interesting, It says here that it was because Jesus humbled himself and was obedient to the Father and was willing to die on a cross. It says, therefore, also, God has highly exalted him. I think the also means that God asked him to do this. But then also God now says, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus one day every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know why God glorified Jesus and raised him up and highly exalted him? It was because he was willing to come down and do a painful thing for us. Let this mind be in you, it says. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17-20, it says that we are ambassadors of Christ, or in the Jesus book, which you guys have heard me use the Jesus book before. You know what? Now you can get it on the U version of the Bible. And then there's another one that you can go on. You can just Google 
uh, the Jesus book and you can get your own copy. They got so tired of, after I would speak and use that version, people calling them up and saying, where do we get the Jesus book? Now, there is the other option for you women, especially if you have generous husbands. If you can get him to buy you a ticket to uh, Hawaii, you can just go into a Christian bookstore and get it there. <laughs> and now, for those of you who, who have been anticipating this, now they have the Before Jesus book. I haven't got a copy, so if anybody gets one, I actually have it on my iPhone, but I don't have the uh, written version. In there, it says, in the, the Jesus book, it says, because we to talk of guys for Christ, and so we tell all the different peoples to come back the same side with God because of what Christ did. So it says, so we beg in the world on behalf of God, we beg in the whole world, hey, come back the same side with God. In your version, and my version, it says, Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ. And then it says this most incredible thing. It says, It's as though the God of the universe were entreating the world through us to be reconciled to Him. If we are ambassadors, I can tell you one thing, because I grew up in countries where there was always a U.S. ambassador. And although I was an Ecuadorian citizen, because my parents were born north of the border, I also had a blue passport, like some of you do. And I know exactly what the purpose of the ambassador of the United States was in Quito, in the capital city of Ecuador. He had no power. He had no leverage. He wasn't a, um, I mean, up here he'd just be an ordinary citizen. But he represented the President of the United States. That's what an ambassador is. And if we are going to be ambassadors of Christ, what we need to do above all else is we need to emulate... Christ, the one who has the power, the one who has called us to be his ambassadors. And it says here, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he was God himself, yet he came down here and he became obedient to God, even to the point of dying on the cross. And it says, and he humbled himself. Boy, somebody gave me this um, a wristband yesterday. It's black and it just says, what if? And I thought, what if what? And then I started thinking, you know, what if? What if we, ambassadors of Christ, would go out to the world humbly? If we would be willing to be obedient to God's call on us instead of going out to do our own thing? I'm telling you, it would change missions so radically that we probably should work up to it slowly because it might cause some, uh, some people to at my age, to have heart problems. Um, Romans 12, 6. I'd like to look at that real quickly. Very quickly. I keep saying quickly. How do you do it quickly? Um, Romans twelve sixteen says, Be of the same mind towards one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. And don't be wise in your own estimation. And then I wanted to read one more. Oh, this, this is... This is a chapter that uh, Martin Luther, or a book that Martin Luther did not like. Martin Luther actually wanted to take the book of James out of the Bible. Because he was all about grace, and this is, talks about works. But uh, in James 2, actually the whole, the whole second chapter, you know what it's about? It's about discrimination. It is, listen to this, it says, uh, My brethren, don't hold your faith 
in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, oh, you can stand over there or sit down at my footstool, you know, sit on the floor. Haven't you made distinction amongst yourselves and become judges with evil motives? It says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? I mean, it's, it's saying here, and it's, you can find it all through the scripture, it says, isn't, it, isn't this the fact that God chose the poor to be rich in faith? Because when we get possessions and when we become very successful in this world, you know what? We start relying on ourselves and it makes it much more difficult for us to rely on God. And it says, And we have become heirs which He promised to those who love Him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Isn't the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Aren't they the ones that blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however... I mean... let me remind you of a, of a great man who has affected probably all of our lives in here who just died. Steve Jobs. I'm Steve with a job. Steve Jobs is one of the most clever men that we have seen in the world. He has affected... I've got the Bible in my left front pocket in 17 languages and in about 64 versions. You know why? Because Steve Jobs had an had a, a vision to change the way we live and the way we do things. And he did. But Steve Jobs, one of his mantras in life was no dogma, no absolute truth. He said, I will not submit to anybody who claims that there's absolute truth. I'm going to live my life. In fact, he wrote a great article about how to live before you die. And I just keep thinking... How sad that we ambassadors of faith didn't live in such a way that Steve Jobs just couldn't stand not to be a God follower. Because now he is writing for the rest of eternity. If what this book says is right, he's writing another article. How to live after you die. And unfortunately, and it really does make me feel bad. I mean, he he changed our lives. He brought... He brought the world to our pockets. And, and he, didn't, he didn't cut corners. He said, I want these products to be so good that people will want to lick them. <laughs> now, this is one of the newer iPhones, not the newest. I get hand-me-downs from my boys. So when they get done with their next version, then I'll get that version. But the first ones, the really nice ones, were the rounded ones. Didn't you... I mean, seriously, you don't have to raise your hands, but didn't you kind of want to just lick it? It just felt so good. I really didn't like these square ones when they came out. Those other ones just fell into your pocket so nicely. It says, isn't, the rich, isn't it the rich and successful that blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture... I'm telling you, what, in, in the interest of time, let's jump down to uh, verse 12. It says, so speak... And so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty someday. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
A lot of you know that I've traveled over the last number of years with a uh, dear friend of mine. Um, we call him the Dude. Most of you know him as Minkai, because you've seen him uh, dressed up in his feather headdress. But uh, I was telling the Batsons who we're staying with that uh, we've got this big portrait of Minkai in my office. Well, it's not really my office. It's a boardroom. I don't have an office yet. I've, um, when they give me cards, then they're probably going to give me an office. But I've got this portrait of Minkai all dressed up in a sport coat, the one with the watches in it, only the watches aren't there, with his headdress on and earplugs. But then we've got this little snapshot that somebody took of Minkai sitting out in a, in a recliner by our pool, and he has on dark glasses that my son Jamie, who's here someplace with me, uh, put on him. And uh, I'll tell you what he looks like. He looks like Aristotle Onassis sitting on, remember the one that married Jackie Kennedy? Sitting in a lawn chair and he's just chilling. So we call him the dude. I've traveled with Minkai a number of times. And those of you who have met Minkai probably don't remember me. I have people all the time come up and say, somebody said you're associated with this you know, story about the Alcas or the people they call the Wawadani now. And they have no clue. They say, oh, we met that chief. The Waurani have no chiefs, but if they were going to have one, the dude would probably be it. And they say, we heard that man speak to us. And I said, oh, really? How did you understand him? And they said, hmm, I don't remember. <laughs> so when I'm traveling with Minkai, I'm just the bag boy. You know what, when my Aunt Rachel died in 1994, I was reading her journals, and in the journals I discovered a number of, well, there's lots and lots of interesting things, but she revealed that three times in her early couple of years living with the Waurani, one warrior threatened to kill her. Three different times. I mean, he didn't threaten her. He told the other people in the community that he was going to kill her. One day, a man went out hunting and didn't come back when he was expected, and this warrior said, if he doesn't come back tomorrow, I, why should this foreigner live? I'm going to, spearing her, she's going to die. I'm going to spear her. You know who that was? Three different times, Grandfather Minkai. And then Aunt Rachel wrote, she said, one night I was sleeping in, in my hut. Now, the Waurani build their houses with thatch that comes all the way down to the uh, ground, all the way around. It's usually long and then it has, you know, it's rounded at the ends. And on the ends, now they make structure with these big palm fronds that, you know, shed the water and then they put leaves over those. And at any rate, in the, in the two ends of the house, they don't put any structure, but you can't tell it. The leaves are still there, but if you walk right through the right part of the end wall, there's no structure. It's always funny. Take um, folks like you down there and watch people say, oh yeah, come follow me. And they walk in the wrong place, boom. And, you know, and then they're kind of groping. You can see from outside, you can see hands coming through. They want to make sure they got the door. Well, that's not the kind of house they built for my Aunt Rachel because Aunt Rachel was always wearing clothes. I mean, foreigners' clothes. And they wanted to see what Aunt Rachel looked like. Oh, natural. They wanted to see. They figured sooner or later she's got to take off that stuff. And they want to see her. So they built her a hut with no walls so they could all watch her. And people would say, I think she's going to take it off. I think she's going to take it off. And they should have had iPhones. We'd all enjoy that, wouldn't we? So Aunt Rachel wrote in her journal, she said, One night I was sitting by my fire and she said it was pitch black outside. 
and I heard somebody walking around in the, in the brush just outside of the firelight, so I couldn't see who it was. Now, you'd think that that was a setup for a scary story, but you don't know Aunt Rachel if you thought she was scared. Aunt Rachel was just curious, wondering who's walking around, you know, the little area of clearing where my hut was. And so she called, Akanin, who are you? And Grandfather Minkai called me and he said, Nemo Apeshugobopa, star, Rachel, I'm just going to pass water. I'm going to take a leak. I mean, down there, it's, I mean, it's not like they're hiding a whole lot, right? And uh, so pretty soon she said, and then I heard somebody walking around my hut again, and I said, Akanuimi, which I don't have to interpret anymore, right? Because we, and, uh, and Minkai called back and he said, Star, already having passed water, I'm going to sleep again. But she said he didn't. He came in and he squatted by her fire. And he said, Star, you speaking, saying, Wangungi, the Creator, coming down here, He can clean our hearts. He said, Are you saying that truly, truly? And Aunt Rachel wrote and she said, And I told him, Minkai, Watiribupa, I spoke that well. And he said, how about my heart? Now, we think of our hearts as being, you know, we talk about sin being black. Minkai's concept is that it's dark. It's not black. It's dark so that you can't see. And he's told hundreds of thousands of people, as we tell him, he said, you know why I lived the way I did? Because nobody had come to teach me this better trail. I couldn't see it. And he said, even when Star was teaching me about this new trail, the Itota, Jesus marked with his own blood, he said, I couldn't see it. So Aunt Rachel's writing in her journal, she said, and Minkai was asking me, can the creator of the universe, can the creator Wangungi, that they knew there was a creator because they could see creation, he said, can Wangungi clean even my heart so that I can see this new trail? And Aunt Rachel said, Minkai, he can even clean your heart. And then she wrote, she said, Minkai didn't say any more. He got up and he left. But the next morning, he came back and she said he was really excited. And he said, Nemo, you did speak truly. Speaking to Wangungi last night, I asked him to clean my heart. And he said, now I'm beginning to see his very good trail. You know what he did shortly after that? This was also in Aunt Rachel's journals. Minkai came to her when I went out to visit her the first time, and he was appalled at how ignorant I was. I was already eight, and I, you know, I was about as big as the teenagers in the Waurani tribe, and I didn't know how to build a house. I couldn't make a canoe. I couldn't pole a canoe. I couldn't track animals. I didn't even know how to shoot a blowgun or make darts or make poison for the darts. And Minkai came to Aunt Rachel and he said, What is wrong with your boy? He is totally ignorant. And then he said, Who's going to teach him to live? And Aunt Rachel, not being bashful, she said, Minkai, you having spear killed his father, who do you say should teach him to live? And you know what? Minkai said, I myself then will teach him to live. And you know how I knew that Minkai had adopted me? 
Because I'd go hunting, or at least I'd follow the kids, the wild hunting kids, trying not to get lost too many times. I mean, this was a different world. I could run computers and things. No, actually, that was in the world before computers. Um, we still had rotary phones, the, the modern ones. We, in our house, we had a crank phone. I mean, I'm talking dark ages here. Grandfather, when I would go out hunting with his boys, I didn't have a blowgun. And one day they said, go get Minkai's blowgun. But my Aunt Rachel had told me, Steve, the Waodani have everything in community. The land is community. The, the gardens are community within the, within the village. But she said, there's one thing that you must not do. Never take a warrior's blowgun. Because they can warp and they always hang them from a from a vine in the, in the top of their house so that it'll stay dry and so it'll stay straight. And she said, never take a warrior's blowgun because that's a prized possession and the family needs that to work right or they don't have food. Because we have a huge grocery store out in the jungles, but the meat department is wild. <laughs> but Grandfather Minkai's boys, when we were going out hunting one day, said, go get Minkai's omina. And I thought, okay, I know what's going to happen here. I'm going to go get the blowgun. You guys are going to use it, and then I'm going to be the one getting in trouble. But they kept insisting, kept insisting, so finally Minkai was in the hut. So I went and I got his blowgun, and we went hunting. Guess who was sitting in his hammock when we came back from hunting? Minkai. And it's hard to sneak in an eight, nine-year-old kid with a ten-foot, nine, ten-foot blowgun. It just isn't easy to be, you know, subtle. And so finally, I just walked in, and right above Minkai, I hung it in the loop. And you know what he did? Nothing. He didn't even look at me. It was just, okay, this is normal. This is the way it should be. And then I realized that Minkai was treating me like his son. Minkai adopted me, and he taught me how to live. When we had our... Second son was born. Ginny and I decided to name him for his grandfathers. So we gave him, now we gave each of our kids a Spanish name, an English name, and a, and, and a tribal nickname. But um, we named our second son, who's sitting right here, we named him Jaime, James, for Ginny's dad. And we named him Nathaniel, Nate, for my dad. And then the Waurani named him Minkai. Because of Grandfather Minkai. So he's named for his three grandfathers. And you know what? Now, our kids, children, of which there are a bunch, number 17 is in the hopper. They all have tribal names. And, uh, and some of our grandchildren, actually their legal names include a Waodani name. And one of my grandsons is also named Minkai because we become family. It's a long story. I won't go into much more of it. But... Um, You know, Minkai has not only become a God follower, but he has also become extremely sensitive spiritually. We were at a big conference for itinerant evangelists over in Amsterdam in the year 2000. And uh, after we had spoken together, my only daughter, Jamie's sister Stephanie, had just died just three days before Suddenly and totally unexpectedly, while we were having a welcome home party for her, she'd been traveling with a Christian music group and she came home and she had a massive cerebral hemorrhage and died. And, and Grandfather and Pementa and I had to go speak at this conference and I wasn't going to go. And, and our family, the family said, no, no. 
if we're going to if we're going to remember Stephanie, then you need to go and do this. Don't let this keep us from doing what God has called us to do. So we went over there, and I, I had shared that story, and Grandfather had shared that story. And after, a day or so afterwards, we were just greeting people, and I mean, it was a mob. Everybody wanted to meet these people, because people all over the world had read about the Wawadani, the story that God wrote with, you know, using us as minor figures. And uh, But one day, after we had spoken, this young lady came up to us, and I could see this look of just, just agony on her face. And she came walking up to us, and before she even started to tell me anything, Grandfather Minkai said, Baba, we need to pray for this young girl one. And I said, uh, Hi, I'm Steve, and this is Grandfather Minkai. And she said, I know who you are. And then I said, is there something that we can do for you? And do you know what? I don't have any idea to this day what it was, but there was something that had injured this young lady so deeply that she couldn't even talk to us. And she didn't need to. Grandfather Minkai put his gentle hands on her and began to pray for her. That Mampawengungi, our Father Creator, would meet whatever hurt there was in her heart that he would clean it away and give her hope to go on living. Extremely sensitive. Um, in fact, I, we have a little video that I'd like to play for you. I, some of you may have seen this, but this is one of my favorite short videos. It's a video of Grandfather Minkai with me in India. Do, do a bunch of you know Caleb from uh, Hyderabad, India? Um, they were trying, they've been trying to plant churches in staunchly Hindu areas around Hyderabad and uh, they were being persecuted. And then just after I met them, they told me that they needed some way to show these people that they cared about them, that they weren't trying to come in and just change the way they believed. They cared about them. And so they came up with the idea. They said, we've heard that in Africa that there are people that you have taught how to do dental work so that they can show the people that they care about them. And they said, we need to learn that because if we don't do that, these people have told us they're going to start killing us. By the time I got home, I had an email waiting for me that one of those pastors that I had met over there right after the Christmas tsunami uh, had been killed by the Hindus. They, they grabbed him and they poured battery acid down his throat and then they burned his body and wouldn't let his 19-year-old wife even retrieve his body because they wanted it to lay there as an example of what they would do to the rest. But you know what? When they said, if you would just come here and teach us how to do dentistry, then the people would see that we cared about them. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll organize that. And they said, but we know how North Americans work. You'll come and you'll bring North Americans and they will do it, but they won't teach us. And they said, we want Grandfather Minkai to come and teach us because they said, we've heard that he knows how to do dentistry. So, believe it or not, we got a, we got a visa for Minkai in the U.S. to go to India. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. When we got home, he said to Ginny, he said, he said, the India place food, not being good it is. I mean, he grew up no spices, not even salt. The Waurani didn't even have salt. And Caleb loves curry. You might as well if you're going to live in India. Because, I mean, even the ice cream was curry flavored. Watch this little one so that you can see yourselves 
grandfather Minkai in, in operation. The people who speared his father to death when he was just a boy asked Steve Saint to return to the Amazon jungle to live with them as a man. Masters of their own world, they wanted to learn skills from the outside world that would enable them to care for their own needs and the needs of their people. Joining the Space Age with the Stone Age is not easy. With two-way radios for telephones and the Amazon's grocery meat department running wild, there were major adjustments to be made on both sides of this experiment. But to Grandfather Minkai and the Wild Donning God followers, the saints were family. They wanted to help their own people, and they wanted Steve to train them to be able to help them. On the opposite side of the world, other God followers heard that the Wildani had learned to fix and extract teeth. Pastors in India wanted to learn these skills so they could show their own people God's compassion for both their felt needs as well as their spiritual hurts. So ITEC and a church in Louisville sent a training team. Training began with anatomy, bone, tooth, and nerve structure, and even blood supply. Then the pastors began with hands-on training, learning sterilization and giving each other shots of anesthesia before even learning how to set up the ITIC equipment that they would be using. The reaction in rural towns was incredible. Communities that had persecuted and even killed one of these Christian pastors now welcomed them with open arms. People turned out in mass to celebrate their first ever dental clinics. There was a special element in this iTech training course. With no healthcare experience, the Indian pastors were skeptical that they could learn critical dental skills in just 10 days. So they contacted Steve and asked him to bring Grandfather Minkai with the team. If Minkai could learn to do this, they believed they could too. But Minkai hesitated to interfere until two trainees began working on a woman who really needed oral surgery. Not even our training dentist wanted to do this one. An infected tooth had eaten into this woman's jawbone, and there was a good chance it would be broken in the process of the extraction. Now, Minkai went to work like an old pro, decisive but extremely gentle. Steve held the light, and we all prayed. We wondered that day what these people would have done if things would have went wrong, but they didn't. Minkai pulled that impacted tooth without even breaking a root. Minkai wasn't done. He knew this woman had a problem much more serious than just a bad tooth. He thanked Wainuni for allowing him to pull her tooth and then asked the Creator to clean her heart so she could see his very good trail. In review of the day, Steve wrote in his journal, I looked at Minkai's gentle hands and realized these are the same hands that once drove spears into my dad's precious body. My dad died for those hands. As Aslan said in the Chronicles of Narnia, when a willing victim dies in a traitor's stead, death really does work backwards. You too can use your hands to turn death into life. We at iTech would like to show you how you can become part of the IDENT training program, training indigenous people basic life-saving dental skills as a door opener for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who were in the plenary session last night and heard... Um King's Pride talk about his group of pastors in Ghana. They have met the needs of 40,000 patients. And you know whose idea it was to use dentistry as a door opener for the gospel? It was the Wauranis. But now I want to tell you another little story about Grandfather Minkai. When, 
one of the things that they asked me to do is to teach them how to do the Ibubia. The tooth thing is the Bhagabia, the tooth thing. They wanted to learn how to do the Bimobia, the medicine thing, the Awinkabia, um, the eye thing, and they also wanted to learn how to do the um, Ibubia. Ibo is the word for a big jungle beetle. And uh, when, it, when these big beetles, I mean, we're talking big beetles, when they fly, they sound like a little airplane. So they call the airplane the, uh, the Ibo. They wanted to learn how to do the airplane thing. And, um, you know, I just thought, wow, I don't know. Going from the Stone Age to the Space Age in one jump, that's going to be a stretch. But they said to me, when your father came, he went fast from place to place in the Ibo. And um, we're starting to get nervous in the front row. And uh, then they said, and then when you came, you go fast from place to place. And they said, now you teaching us how to do the Ibo Bia. We ourselves are going to go place to place all over. And we're going to teach the people how to walk God's trail, fixing their teeth and giving them the medicine. And I thought, okay, that'd be great. How are we going to do that? And so we started at, we had already started ITEC, the Indigenous People's Technology and Education Center, figured out, okay, why not... Why not invent a plane that these, that my Waurani family can use? Um, it was a little bit of a stretch, but we prefabricated parts for a little airplane up here in the U.S. I took them down to Ecuador. Talk about strange baggage. I took the airplane to Ecuador as a company baggage. You know when the stewardess says, be careful when opening the overhead compartments? I had the engine in a roller bag. I'd taken the heads off, had the engine there, and I was struggling to get this thing in the overhead compartment. The pilot came to my rescue and said, yeah, it looks heavy. I've got a closet up front, so we put the engine right behind his seat up in the uh, cockpit. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, then we, then we were building it. We were assembling this thing down on the edge of the jungles. So Grandfather Minkai, we started it in the jungles, and then we bought the assemblies out because we didn't have a real good place to test fly it in the jungles. So we brought it out to Shell, where my parents had lived on the edge of the jungles. And when we went out there, we got to stay in this building that we called the Ark. My dad knew that the Indians in the jungles, while he was still living, one of the things they really needed was medical attention. So he talked, he kept trying to talk people into building a clinic down the, there on the edge of the jungles. And finally, he got the attention of the World Radio Missionary Fellowship. They weren't big into medicine, but he talked them into bringing some people down to do medical work. And he said, and I will build you a building. So my mom and dad took a little inheritance that my dad had gotten from his grandfather and they bought land from the Shell Oil Company. And dad was in the process with Roger Udarian of building that hospital when they were killed. It became a hospital that served the jungle people for years and years. And then finally... HCJB or World Radio Missionary Fellowship built another hospital and so they turned this into a guest house and Grandfather Minkai and Pimenta and I were staying there in the guest house while we were assembling this airplane so that we could test fly it. And then the, we did test fly it and scariest airplane I ever flew. We still have one hanging up at iTech. If you come, you'll see it there as a reminder that if we're going to make technology for frontier peoples, it's got to be appropriate. And... Um, we were assembling that, and then it was time for me to go back to the States and for Tementa and Minkai to fly back into the jungles. But the night before I was going to go to the, the mountains and they were going to go to the jungles, somebody had a car that they wanted taken up to Quito, and they asked me if I would drive it, which meant four hours in a car instead of eight hours the next day in a bus. And so I told the guest house uh, manager, I said, um, 
I'm going to leave tonight, but Grandfather Minkai and Tamantha don't have a flight in until tomorrow. Tamantha's a little boy, if you've seen End of the Spirit, the little boy who's going to be buried alive when his father, Nankiwi, was speared. And I said, but I'd like to settle the, uh, the bill, but Tamantha and Minkai are just going to spend tonight here. It was already evening, and, uh, and then tomorrow they've got a flight out. And when I said that, he said, uh, oh, I'll have to speak to the administrator about that. I mean, it was this big guest house, and we were practically the only people there. And I didn't understand. I said, uh, well, I mean, they'll just stay in the same room. You don't have to change the beds or anything. They'll just stay here, and then a friend is going to come and get them to take them down to their flight into the jungles. And he said, well, um, you see, we've, we've got this rule. Um, Indians aren't supposed to stay in the guest house. He said, but I didn't want to say anything because they're with you, but if they're going to stay here after you leave, I'm going to have to get authorization from the, admi- from the administrator. Now, I'm not telling you this because I want you to pass it on. I'm telling you this because this is the kind of thing that is happening that we are doing in other places because we are going without the mind of Christ. And I suddenly realized that I was going to have to tell this man, who's one of my dearest friends in the whole world, and, and my adopted father, that I was going to have to tell him, this man who has traveled and spoken to hundreds of thousands of people, who is willing to die for the gospel, that I was going to have to tell him that he could not stay in the mission guest house that my father had dreamed of having to meet the needs of jungle people because he was an Indian. I couldn't bring myself to tell my grandfather and they didn't have a place to stay. And I was supposed to go to Quito and I just was... A friend of mine down there saw the agony and he said, Steve, what is wrong? I said, oh, it's a long story. I can't explain it. And he said, Steve, what is wrong? I mean, you look like you're dying. What, what is wrong? Has something happened? Is somebody dead? Have you gotten bad news from the States? And I could not even bring myself to tell him that this building that my dad had built and, and had dreamed about to serve jungle... And it, it wasn't that, that ill-willed people had come and decided, oh, we don't want it. It was just one little decision after another one that finally they decided... I asked the man, who's a friend of mine, who is managing... I said, well, where can they stay? And he said, well, you know, there's those little huts out behind the building just down the street. That's really where they're supposed to stay. And I said, can I stay there with them? And he said, Steve, you know that that would be offensive to the missionary community. I've never stayed in that guest house ever again. And now it's too late. You know what? I asked if they would let us use that old termite-eaten building for a training center for people from the jungle's godfathers so that they could meet the needs of their own people. And you know what I was told? Now I'm telling you, this is not, this is not a rare, rare exception. This is, I'm telling you, this is representative of the things that we've been doing around the world. And it's so painful, it's hard for me to even tell you. And it may, it might embarrass some people. And They wouldn't let Grandfather Minkai, the man that my dad died for, 
to stay in the mission guest house. He was supposed to stay in the huts. You know what they did with that building? They paid people to come in and tear it down because they said, what if people get inside the guest house and then use that as a way to get into the, comp- into the mission compound? And I wrote and I said, I will build the chain link fence just like you have it with the barbed wire on top. I will build that immediately around the guest house so that nobody can get in. And they tore it down. Do you know what that is? That's discrimination. That is an ugly, ugly thing. And it's happening all over the world because we go as North Americans with our priorities and we say we're going to serve these people. You know what we're doing? We are in way, way, way too many cases. We are going to lord it over them. And I'm telling you, this book talks about lording it over people. It is a disqualification of service as an ambassador of Christ. Listen to what it says in Peter chapter 5, starting with verse 2. It says, Shepherd the flock of God amongst you, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And then listen to this in verse 3 of chapter 5. This is talking about how deacons and elders and uh, deaconesses, how they should operate. And it says um, in verse 3, Nor yet as lording it over those who are put under your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, if the believers, our brothers and sisters in frontier areas, emulate our example... We are going to be perpetuating this harsh, lording it over attitude that has been representative of our mission efforts way, way, way too often. You don't see it, but I have lived on the other side of the fence, and I'm telling you, it is an ugly, ugly thing. It's embarrassing. But worse than that, it is contradictory to the thing that God has called us to do. He's called us to go and serve. It says, remember, he says, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ, who, though he was God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet came down here and made himself in our form, took upon our, himself our measly form, and then became obedient even unto death on the cross because he humbled himself. Now, you can find there's, there's all kinds of other passages in here. In 2 Corinthians, at the very end of the first chapter, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, who obviously he had promised to go back and see, and they were complaining because he hadn't come back as he had promised to do. And so Paul is writing a defense of the fact that he hasn't come back. Listen to this. In verse 23 and 24 in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter says, Paul says, I call God to witness, as a witness to my soul, that it was to spare you that I didn't come anymore to Corinth. Now, they wanted him to come back. They were his spiritual children. He's saying, I didn't come back to visit you again, to spare you. And then listen to what he says. Not that I should lord it over your faith, but my objective is that your faith should become strong and steady. And he said, if I come back, you're going to submit to me, you're going to want me to make the decisions, but my objective as your spiritual father is to raise you to be mature believers. And he said, no, I can't come back. I didn't come back for your good because I didn't want to lord it over you. You want to see it in the Old Testament? Look at Ezekiel 34. This is a diatribe, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I would suggest that you read 
chapter 34. This is a diatribe against the shepherds of Israel. It says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Aren't shepherds supposed to feed the flock? Now, I want you all to think about short-term missions. Not all. There is a baby in there someplace. You know, like they say, if there's that much poop in the barn, there must be a pony someplace. (laughs) But I'm telling you, most of what we do in what we call short-term missions is we go on feel-good adventures to other countries for our benefit, not for theirs. And here it's saying, woe to you shepherds. Shepherds are supposed to be feeding the flock. Instead, you guys are eating the flock. And so it goes on and says, and so I'm not going to let you be shepherds anymore because I will not tolerate you abusing my children. It says, those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. And then listen to this, says, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. And it goes on and says, and so I'm not going to let you be shepherds anymore. You cannot be my ambassadors unless you emulate me because I'm the one that has the authority. I'm the one that has the power. And I've called you to be my representatives out there. But if you do not act to the world like I want my children treated, then you disqualify yourselves. This is such a huge issue that we have developed, at iTech, we've developed a series. It's a video series, seven parts, seven chapters, seven different topics. There's a workbook to go with it. There's a teacher's guide. And each one refers to a reading in the Great Omission, a book that I wrote about this topic. You know what I did? I thought, if you folks, you don't have the advantage that I have. You don't get to hear from people in foreign countries on a regular basis. And even if you did get to talk to them, they wouldn't tell you honestly what they think about the way we've been doing missions. But they will often tell me because they know that I grew up tribal. And you know what? I went out and I just interviewed people from around the world. And I said, if, if you could get a chance to speak to the North American church and to tell us how we could do missions more sensitively, more productively... And more appropriately, in your part of the world, what would you want to tell us? They're incredible stories. I I ran into a young lady at at Urbana, a big conference. And uh, her name was Gulcha. I saw it on her name tag. And I said, uh, Gulcha? And she said, Gulcha. My name is Gulcha. I'm from Turkey. And I said, Gulcha, are you a godfather? She said, oh yes, the missionary is coming and they're telling me about Jesus. And I'm liking Jesus a lot. And I said, so now what do you do, Gulcha? And she said, oh, before that she said, but the missionaries, they telling me to change my culture. But I liking my culture. I liking Jesus, but I liking my culture. So what to do? And I knew what the problem was. I mean, we take our culture with the gospel. It's, Jesus said, take the shrimp. And we bread it because that's the way we like it. We take cocktail sauce and we go and... Uh, The Waurani, they like the shrimp, but they don't like all the breading and all that stuff. And we can't separate, a lot of times, our culture from the message that we've been asked to take. I was going someplace. Where was I going, guys? Gulcha. Oh, Gulcha says, I said, Gulcha, what do you... I knew you, I needed you guys. (coughs) I said, Gulcha... What do you do now? And she said, 
Now Wulcha giving people Jesus, but I only giving them Jesus. There was a man, I thought his name was Francisco, and he was dressed up like an Arab. And I said, oh Francisco, quiero entrevistarte. He said, I don't know what you're saying. I, Francesco, and I from Italy. I said, oh Francesco, I want to interview you. He said, what means interview? And I said, you see that camera there? You and I are going to talk, and we're going to film that, and I want to know your story. And he said, no, you're talking to my comrade. Francesco, only coming to America three days. He said... Francesco, never dreaming I coming to America. I said, okay, I want to interview you. He said, no, 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 I'm not speaking English. I said, no, this is perfect. I said, Francesco, tell me, why are you dressed up like an Arab? He said, in my country, big problem. Many Arabs coming to my country. I said, is that a problem? He said, they not knowing about Jesus. I said, so, so? He said, so, Francesco, I'm teaching them. But he said, the big problem, many Arabs only want a Francesco. And I saw my opening, I said, Francesco, here in North America, there are people that would be willing to go and help you. Would you like me to recruit some people to go help you? He said, okay, Francesco going to be thinking about this. <laughs> I said, Francesco, do you want help or don't you want help? I could get some people that would go and help you. And I knew where this was going. He said, okay, okay, Francesco going to be thinking a lot about this. I said, Francesco, do you want help or don't you want help? He said, okay, America coming to help of Francesco, but no more mama, mama, mama. Diane Becker, who is running the camera, she looked out from behind the camera like, what is he talking about? And I knew exactly what he was talking about. You know what he was telling me? He was telling me, okay, but only if you guys will come and learn from me how to do ministry to Arabs, because I've been doing it for years. But he knew that we'd send teenagers and they'd come down off the plane and they'd start telling him how to do ministry to Arabs. And he didn't want our help because he didn't trust us. This is full of stuff like that. Florence Mundy, you know Florence? You know what Florence said in a plenary session a few years ago? She said, I decided that I wanted to be a missionary. And she said, but I didn't want to be a Protestant missionary because they don't touch the people. And so she said, I, wanted, I decided that I would be a Catholic missionary because the Catholics will get in there and they will live with the people and they will touch the people. And she said, but my pastor says, but your theology has to be good. And she said, I didn't know what to do. So I started looking for the perfect example of a missionary. And she said, I found him. And I thought, who would that be? David Livingston, Adam Iron Judson. I was trying to, you know, I was going through all these names. She said, Jesus. Because he was willing to touch us and he lived like us. He humbled himself and was, was made in our image and subjected himself to the pain that we... You know what the Bible says? You know how, Jesus, how God prepared Jesus to be our Savior? It says, God prepared Jesus to be our perfect Savior through suffering. This little video series, seven 23-minute videos to watch is mostly interviews. We filmed it right here in front of a live audience. I don't push product, but can I recommend to you that if you want to really know how to do missions in other parts of the world, would you listen to this and listen to these brothers and sisters who have shared honestly and openly with us? One of my friends from down in the Amazon jungle, Eli Katachunga, who, who was here and spoke once to you, and we are out of time. He, we're past out of time. 
If you need to leave, if you have to go to the bathroom, please just leave. He stood up in front of the assembly here at GMHC and he said, you know what, when the missionaries came to us, we desperately wanted the gospel. But he said, they first told us, wait a minute, you've got to stop beating your drums because you use the drums to, to appease the evil spirits. They said, stop beating your drums. And then they said, and stop, you, stop dancing, stop doing your tribal dances because you dance to appease the evil spirits. You, you, you beat your drums to call the evil spirits. You dance to appease the evil spirits. And they said, and don't sing your songs because they said, our songs should... should be in adoration of God, but your songs exalt yourselves. And then he said, then the missionary said, come, let's go worship God. He said, we had nothing left to worship with. They'd taken everything away. And then at this conference where he was speaking down the jungles, he turned around and he started beating this huge drum because the special music was being provided down in Porto Velho, Brazil, out in the Amazon jungle by an Apache chief and his son... I mean, that's really funny. And uh, he started beating this drum. He said, you know what? It took us 40 years to figure out that we could have the gospel in our culture. That the gospel was the clear water that the missionaries brought us in their pitcher. And he said their pitcher didn't fit us. And it took us all these years, decades, to learn that it was just the pure water was the gospel we could put in our own envase. And then he called to the people out there and he said, all of you who are Tikuna, stand up. And so all the people from his tribe, there were 65 tribes. This is down in Puerto Vallejo, not here. And he said, I want you Tikuna to tell me when you go out to take Christ's gospel to other tribes, don't you try to make them Tikuna. God has called us to make people like him, not like us. Brothers and sisters, the downside here is that that's not the way we've been doing it. And I suggest to you that if we do God's will our way, we're not doing God's will at all. The measure of our success in missions is not what we do. It is discipleship. And when we demean and we discriminate against people, what we are doing is the antithesis of discipleship. What do good parents do? They raise their children to replace them. That's discipleship. And that's what Christ has called us to do. And you know what good parents do? They love their children without condition. They love them and they encourage them. And when they make mistakes, they, they discipline them because they're, if they're real children. And then they encourage them to go on and do better. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. And you know what we've been doing instead? We've been going everywhere, doing everything for everybody forever. And that is not God's will. It says in John 15, verse 8, Jesus said himself, I want you to go out and bear much fruit. And by doing that, you're going to prove what? That you are my disciples. And then verse 16 he said, and I want you to go and bear fruit that will remain. And the only way that fruit remains is if you plant the seed. This is a family thing. It's passed on and on and on and on. If you want to know how to do missions right, and you don't want to get this, this, this is a dynamite part. This will take you around the world so that you can hear from those people, not from me, that you can hear from them. There's uh, some videos that we have at our booth out here that have a trailer for it. And uh, Jamie and Jimmy and Brian have it available to you. 
And one last thing. I, I don't have time to read this. I just got an email from a woman that talked about in a foreign country, she said, we had orphanages. The people, our churches started to start orphanages. And she said, we did it, you know, on the basis of the standard of living that we had. And she said, then a wealthy in North American came and built a million dollar facility. And then he went to the government and said, this is what an orphanage should be like. And he said, she said, she writes me here and she said, he shut down all of the orphanages except the Catholic orphanages because the government set a standard that the local churches couldn't maintain. And she said, he came and arrogantly told us that what we were doing wasn't adequate. And she was responding to me because I had written an article in Mission Frontiers and we have some copies of those will be available at our booth. Um, it was on poverty. Projecting poverty where it doesn't exist. Do you have this book? Read it and do what it says because God has called us to do His will His way. I've been honest with you here this morning. I could tell you other stories that would just, it would make you embarrassed to identify yourselves as a missionary, a Christian missionary for North America or would-be missionary. And my purpose is not to embarrass you. My purpose is that we go out and we do God's will by being His ambassadors and emulating Him humbly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that You'll touch our hearts, Lord, that You'll break our hearts, that we will see the world the way You see it. Lord, we want to be Your your faithful servants. We want to do Your work. We want to bear fruit that will please You a great deal. And Lord, we don't want You to be separated from so many children for eternity. In Jesus' name, Amen.